Well, uh, church, if you've ever been to London and ridden on their underground train known as the Tube, then you know that as trains pull up to the station and prepare to open their doors, you hear a recorded announcement that cautions you to mind the gap. It's a warning that you need to pay attention to the space that exists in between the platform and the train. And the reason that you need to pay attention to the gap is because if you're not mindful of it, it might cause you to trip and to fall, which would cause both injury and embarrassment. So when traveling underground in London, you must mind the gap. Now in our country, the gap that we need to mind that is threatening to cause us to trip and fall, inducing both injury and embarrassment, is not underground in the tunnels of a subway system, but it is a gap that is directionally situated in between the right and the left of our country. It's a gap that is socially and morally positioned in between those with more conservative leanings and those with more liberal leanings. Generally speaking, it's a gap that separates our urban populations from our rural communities. It's a gap that separates the college educated from those without the college degree. It's a a gap that separates those with lighter skin pigmentation from those with darker skin pigmentation. If you looked at the electoral map from the last presidential election, you'll notice that it's a gap that stretches nearly 2,000 miles from the northeast coast of the United States all the way out to the west coast of our country. It's a gap that appears to be constantly widening and deepening and increasingly creating tension and stress and conflict within our communities and our families and our places of work and in our houses of worship. This gap has grown so significant as of late that there have regularly been stories in the news recently about how we as a nation are currently more divided than we've been at any time since the Civil War, when we were literally trying to kill one another. The gap that exists in this nation is sowing mistrust and animosity and fear and anger in every direction. And it feels as if it's on the verge of boiling over into real chaos. It is affecting, or maybe I should say it is infecting, like a disease would, everything and everyone, including Christians in the life of the church. It is a gap that has the potential to do so much damage that it must be paid attention to. We need to mind the gap. So this morning, as we continue in our series considering the politics of the kingdom, we're going to consider a value of the kingdom of God that speaks directly to this this gap that threatens to cause us to trip and to fall through division and dissension. It's a value that Jesus engaged head on in the choosing of his disciples It's a value that the Apostle Paul called upon when dealing with this gap danger in the life of the church in Corinth. And it's a value that we need to continue to prioritize today in the face of these very same challenges that persist in the modern church. The value of the kingdom of God that we're talking about this morning is the value of unity. The kingdom of God is a kingdom that is united And as we'll see in the scriptures, this value, it has the ability to help the church mind the gap and overcome even the greatest of differences that may exist between us in order that there might be unity in the kingdom of God and ultimately healing in the life of a nation. 
We're beginning this morning uh, in our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 1. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. Now this story uh, from Matthew chapter 10 is the account of Jesus naming his 12 apostles. Throughout the early days of his ministry, Jesus was calling many people to himself. Come and follow me, Jesus would often say. And many people did. The invitation to follow Jesus and and become one of his disciples was, and it remains, an open invitation for everyone who would receive it. Jesus invites everyone to follow him. But in our passage today, Jesus selects, out of that large group of disciples who were following him, a smaller group of twelve to be his apostles. These are the men who became Jesus' inner circle, kind of like his small group, his, his 242 group. These are the ones who Jesus brought a little bit closer than everyone else. He took them with him everywhere that he went. He taught them and he trained them. And eventually Jesus sent them out to be the leaders of the early church after his death and resurrection. The point is simply this, that out of the larger group of followers, Jesus identified a smaller group of apostles to invest deeply in. Now, there are accounts of this selection that Jesus made in each of the first three Gospels. But Luke's uh, version of this account is the only one in which we're actually told how Jesus made his selections. In Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, we are told that in these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came... He called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named to be apostles. And so what we learn from this account in Luke is that Jesus didn't randomly pick twelve of the disciples to become his apostles. He didn't draw names from a hat. He didn't have them play rock, paper, scissors with one another to determine who got to be an apostle. He didn't throw a stick up in the air and and see who it was pointed at when it landed on the ground and and, and allow that to be how he made his selection. (laughs) Jesus didn't use a random system to make a rash decision here. Instead, he spent significant time in prayer and in spiritual discernment and listening to his Father. He was intentional and thoughtful and strategic in whom he selected. Though we're not told why Jesus selected who he selected, there was clearly a plan and a purpose for his decision. Jim Collins, who wrote the best-selling management book, Good to Great, talks about the importance of getting the right people into the right seats on the bus. And he says, your organization can't go anywhere until that happens. And, And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's making a very purposeful decision about who should be his apostles for the future well-being of the church. And in our reading from Matthew, we're told who he selected. In verse 2, we see that he, that he chose Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, considering that list, what I want to suggest to you today is that I believe that at least part of what Jesus was doing in the selection of his apostles A part of the reason why he chose who he chose was in order to mind the gap. (laughs) Here's what I mean by that. Within Jesus' selection of apostles, there are two men 
that he chose who would have been the least likely of men to ever be in a group with one another. Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. We we know that there's something of significance going on with these two because out of that list of the apostles, they're the only ones in the list who are identified by their vocation. And what we know when we consider their vocations is that if you were looking to build a team that had cohesion and that worked well together and that functioned in a healthy and orderly way, you would never put these two on that team with one another. They were the least likely of partners. Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors were officials of the Roman government who were responsible for the security and, and collection of revenue for Rome. They were hired by the Roman government to collect tolls and taxes on all kinds of items. And they weren't paid a salary by the Roman government, but instead they were given the freedom and the authority to collect taxes above and beyond what the law required, and they pocketed the difference. So tax collectors essentially made their money off the backs of the people with the authority of the Roman government behind them. And for this reason, they were regarded as leeches, as people who consistently and legally gorged themselves at the expense of their fellow citizens. Jews in particular who worked for Rome were considered traitors by their people. There were few men who were more detested in Jewish communities than tax collectors. Now, Simon, on the other hand, was a zealot. If you have an ESV translation, it says that he was a Canaanian. Canaanians were members of a Jewish sect that were fiercely loyal to Jewish traditions and to Jewish law. They believed that only the Hebrew language should be spoken in the land of Palestine, and they were constantly looking for a Messiah who would overthrow the Romans and restore the kingdom of Israel. These zealots vehemently opposed the payment of taxes to a pagan emperor, saying that their allegiance and their duty was to God alone. They were idealistic revolutionaries who wanted to drive the hated Romans and everything having to do with them out of the land by any means necessary. They loved their country and were prepared to die for it. Now, can you imagine putting these two men in the same room and expecting them to work together? much less within, within the, your inner circle of followers with whom you were entrusting the f- future and well-being of your organization. This is a disaster waiting to happen. Now, these two men represented the ex- exact opposite extremes of society. Matthew was a tax collector. Simon was a tax hater. Matthew was a servant of Rome helping to prop it up. Simon was an opponent of Rome wanting to burn it down. Matthew was seen as a traitor to Israel, Simon considered himself a patriot of Israel. This is an Occupy Wall Street protester being joined together with a a Tea Party patriot on steroids, right? Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell have far more in common than these two did. This is even a bigger deal than when I decided to marry a girl who went to Duke, right? And trust me, that was a big deal. What was Jesus thinking when he picked these two to be a part of his inner circle? Why in the world... Would he do this? Well, I believe that Jesus did this in order to teach us a lesson and to provide for us an example. I believe that he did it in order to mind the gap. And what Jesus teaches us in this lesson and what he shows us in this example is that in the kingdom of God, there is a unity that is more powerful than our divisions. The kingdom of God is a kingdom that is united. 
It's interesting, and I wonder if it's not purposeful, that throughout all the rest of the scriptures, we never hear from Matthew or Simon individually ever again. We never hear of them having an argument, never hear of them having a fight, never hear about either of them trying to recruit other apostles or or trying to convince Jesus onto their side of things. Throughout the rest of the scriptures, we never learn anything about their lives, never hear from them again. The only thing that we know for certain about the lives of Matthew and Simon from this point forward is that along with the rest of the apostles, for the better part of three years, they learned at Jesus' feet together. We know that together they huddled in a crowded fishing boat as Jesus calmed stormy seas along with their fears. We know that together they watched Jesus feed the hungry, cure lepers, give sight to the blind, cast out demons, and raise the dead to life. We know that together they heard Jesus teach with life-changing power and authority, and they witnessed him extend divine forgiveness to the undeserving over and over and over again. We know that together they saw him unjustly arrested, wrongly tried and convicted, brutally beaten and forcefully nailed to a cross upon which he died. We know that together they encountered him after he rose from the grave and appeared to them alive, nail-scarred hands and all. And we know that together they were commissioned by Jesus to go and to make disciples of the whole world, baptizing them in his name. And the last thing that we know for certain about Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot is recorded in Acts chapter 1. For after Jesus' ascension, we're told that all of the apostles were staying together. And after Acts lists them out all by name again, including Matthew and Simon, what the scriptures tell us is that all of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. The last thing the scriptures ever tell us about Matthew and Simon, these former rivals, is that they were united with one another. In the name and in the mission of Jesus, they were united. Differences had been set aside. Values had been reprioritized. Allegiances had been realigned. They were united and of one accord. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, as Paul says. Matthew and Simon had become one because of the transforming work that Jesus had done in their lives. They may not have ever seen eye to eye on the political issues of their day, but they did come to realize that the Jesus that they had in common was far more important than the politics that sought to divide them. And I believe that this is why Jesus brought them together. I believe that this is the lesson that Jesus teaches us and the example that he sets in choosing such opposite characters to be a part of his group of apostles. That our unity in Christ is greater than our differences in the world. This is a message that the church has always needed to hear and to be reminded of. This is how Paul exhorted the Corinthians when they were facing divisions within their church from our New Testament reading today. There was a report about quarreling among the members of the church, and they were being divided by their desires to follow different leaders within the community. In order to address that division, Paul simply points them back to the unity that they had in Christ 
He sarcastically asks, was I crucified for you? Or were you baptized into my name? The answer was obviously no. Paul wasn't worthy of being followed. Apollos wasn't worthy of being followed. Cephas wasn't worthy of being followed. It was only Jesus who deserved their allegiance. It was only Christ who was worthy of their devotion and their commitment. Because it was Christ who had died for them. It was His name into which they were baptized. And it was by His Spirit that they were made a new creation. As a result, their true identity could only be found in Christ. It couldn't be in anything else. In the church, we can't have an allegiance to anyone else. Nothing should divide us when Christ has united us. And the same should be true in the church today. Yet, in our current world of political identity, identity politics, this isn't always easy. We need to, to mind the gap that exists in the world and in the church now more than ever. Because there is pressure everywhere to place our identity in and to find our hope in something or someone other than Christ and as a result end up divided against one another. In a world where there are Trump flags outside of houses and Biden signs in people's yards, where there are bumper stickers on cars that identify us on one team or another, where there are constant truth claims on, on television ads and radio ads, and, and where the news is constantly telling you something new and shocking, urging you towards one side or the other of the political divide, depending on, on the bias of whatever news channel you're watching. In a world like that, with messages like that, it's easy to start to believe that Donald Trump is being crucified for you, like a sacrificial offering before the liberal media as he works on your behalf. Or that you should be baptized, washed clean, and made new by Joe Biden's progressive political agenda. Both sides are challenging for our allegiance, creating division and dissension among us. And if we're not mindful of that gap, especially within the life of the church, it can easily cause us to trip and fall. And we'll end up hurting ourselves by damaging our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. We'll end up embarrassing ourselves before the watching world by marring our witness as the church through our divisions with one another and our false political gods. We must mind the gap that exists in this divided world. And the way that Jesus teaches us to do that, the example that he has given us in the apostles is by finding our unity and our identity in him and in nothing else. But we must be reminded that our allegiance isn't to an elephant or to a donkey, but it's to a lamb. The elephant and the donkey can't save you, but the lamb has. The elephant and the donkey can't redeem the world, but the lamb currently is. The elephant and the donkey can't make this broken world new, but the lamb will. Now, this doesn't mean that our political convictions and beliefs aren't deeply important. They are. They matter to the world and to the well-being of God's creatures and His creation. And, and we need to think critically and pray fervently about the positions that we advocate for and the politicians that we elect. But like Matthew and Simon, the Jesus we have in common must be more important than the politics that seek to divide us. The word that He gave us must be more valuable than our party's platform. The mission that he gave us must take precedence over our political agendas. And the unity to which he called us must supersede any petty political differences that exist. Church, ultimately, we can find this kind of unity with one another 
Because in Jesus, our identity is no longer tax collector or zealot, Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal, socialist or capitalist, or any other label that the world might assign. We are first and foremost sons and daughters of the Almighty God, purchased by the blood of Jesus upon the cross, sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism, and called to join together with all of the saints in the mission of God. Politics are important, but Jesus and his mission are far more important. And ironically, when we commit ourselves to Jesus and to his mission, true, lasting, and countercultural unity really is possible. It can be lived in the church and modeled to the world, which is exactly what is needed in order to mind the gap that exists. May we do this to the glory of God and to the good of His creation. Amen.